With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Discussing local, national, and international issues. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to the second hour of Weekends Sunday edition here at TNT Radio. I hope you enjoyed the last hour with Patrick Burns. What a story. Uh, The biggest money laundering case way back in 1988 and the detail that was involved there, quite incredible. And this hour is going to be just as interesting because I've got Lieutenant Colonel retired Alastair Pope on the line. He emigrated from Glasgow, Scotland to Perth, Western Australia, 1964, and still has that same accent. It just doesn't go away. He was uh, selected for officer training at Shayville and graduated as a second lieutenant in 1967. He served in Vietnam, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and as a subunit commander in 3rd Brigade. Three years after graduating from uh, Army Staff College in Queenscliff, he was promoted to the senior officer rank of lieutenant or lieutenant colonel. After 20 years service, he retired from the Australian Army and founded his own business, working internationally as a project manager in the energy, oil and gas, biotechnology and telecommunications industries until his retirement. Alistair has had 200 plus articles published in publications such as the Shavillian Strategy and Tactics, World at War, Modern War and Quadrant Online. Alistair Pope, welcome to Weekends. Thank you, Jason. It's wonderful to have you on the show. There is so much to talk about and what a career that you had. Is there at any stage as uh, somebody who's ex-military that you ever feel like that you miss it or is it once you've done your service, that's it, and you move on into other realms and just reflect on it and develop a career from there? No, I mean, I, I, I love the Army, um, but I was faced at the age of 42 with a choice. And the choice was that um, if I stayed in, then I really had to guarantee, and I couldn't guarantee, that I'd get further promotions. Otherwise, it just wasn't there. The second thing was that um, I would have a one life, a one career life if I stayed in, because at the age of 42, you can do other things. At the age of, say, 54 or 57, other things is fairly limited unless it's voluntary. So uh, I'd actually made a decision early on. And the, the second thing was I had a couple of children who were moving all the time. They weren't getting the stability I thought that uh, I had had when I grew up. Um, so I, I, I decided, my wife and I decided that uh, we had to find one place to stay and that uh, that would give the kids stability. And if I had to move for jobs, I would but they would stay in the one place and, and get to, to grow up in uh, learn and have long-term friends. It turned out to be a bad decision for one reason on my part, because both my kids joined the army and uh, <laughs> one of them's still in the army now. The other one's left and now married with a couple of kids in our, of our own. But um, the point there was that I, I decided that I would have a multiple career life so that I would get different experiences. I'm not very good at... Um, uh, staying in the one place. So I like the army. I like this moving around. I like the new experiences. Um, and I found out when I got out that if you keep doing the same thing, you get very bored very quickly. And that just didn't suit my character. So in fact, um, I was quite happy to get out at the time. And life was pretty tough when I got out because I did miss the army. And I, I found that um, I'd been in the army so long that civilian life was quite different. In the, in the army, if you ask someone to do something, you had an 85% chance you would actually do it. 
And I found out when I got out, if I asked someone to do something, you would say, absolutely, I'm on it right away. And it wouldn't happen about 85% of the time. And that was a huge shock to me that you just couldn't trust people to do what they said they would do. When in the army, people always did what they said they would do, or nearly always. And so that was a, that was a, a huge culture change for me. But I did prepare by joining um, various external to the army clubs, such as tennis clubs, squash clubs, chess clubs. Um, so I got to meet um, civilians. And um, so I, I wasn't someone who sort of only circulated in the, the military sphere, which happens to happen because when you move from one town to the other, the only people you know are people you know in the army. And, and therefore, it's very hard to break out of that. And a lot of people get trapped into that. And uh, they stay in too long, if you like, in my opinion. But uh, 20 years was enough. And of course, the army was changing. And my children have pointed out to me, I would not survive in today's woke army. And I've written some extremely critical articles about the army of today. It's not preparing for war. It's, it's preparing for peace and wokeism and everything else that, that doesn't win wars. Um, we're, we're trying to make war into a caring, sharing business. Um, and, and that's just not going to work. I think that's one of the reasons actually why PTSD has grown uh, to such an extent. I don't think, I mean, some of the people might be, you know, working on it, but uh, I think many people are suffering that because they didn't get the hardened training that uh, was preparing people to go to places like Vietnam. Um, you know, and I, I could actually describe some of the things that uh, we did as part of that training, such as shoot pigs mm. and then go up and butcher them. And uh, of course, for little Johnny, who's always thought that um, pork meat came out of a can and mum cooked it, uh, this was a huge shock to see a dead piggy just drilled with a 7.62. And then we asked them to sort of cut them up. So they don't do that anymore. Even the SAS get a dead chicken instead of a live one. So don't have to kill a chicken. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> incredible, ridiculous. isn't it? It is ridiculous when you think that you're trying to kill human beings, but you're not trying to kill a chicken when you might actually have to kill a chicken out there in the field uh, just to survive one way or another. Uh, and and I, I'm impressed by the way that you just go straight to cut to the chase and explain that even in the military today, wokeism seems to have infected it. We've seen over in the US uh, th this year, they're complaining that no, that they're short of recruits uh, post uh, the COVID era and obviously uh, mandates, um, etc. That's an interesting story in itself. It is. I mean, they can't recruit people today. Um, firstly, the culture of Australia has changed dramatically. When I arrived here, I thought Australia was the greatest country, and that was coming from Glasgow, which was not the greatest country, I can tell you, but it certainly taught me violence. Um, but uh, when I got here, I, I, I worked out in the outback for the first seven months just after I arrived in Australia. Now, that was a huge culture shock to go from, uh, you know, Glasgow, inner city Glasgow, to um, the outback of Australia, 60 miles out of uh, Port Hedland. Mm, where there's wow. nobody for basically about 60 miles. Mm. And um, I spent uh, time out there laying out the roads and uh, for uh, Mount Goldsworthy Mines, which were just opening up at the time. So we were laying out the, you know, the surveys for the roads there, and we did various things like that. Um, but uh, I, it was good fun. And I liked the adventure of being out there, and we shot our own meat. We shot our own... Uh, you know, kangaroos, our own pigs, our own goats. Uh, and that's how we got fresh meat. And that was fine. We didn't shoot sheep, by the way. 
Um, so we, we actually were hunting our own food and everything else was supplied in cans and you only had very limited water. So I learned a lot out there and then I came back and I, I found myself actually, well, that was fun, but an 18 year old, uh, 19 year old doesn't want to spend too much time out in the bush there where there's not a girl in sight for 60 miles. So uh, I took a job in Perth, which bored me witless, which is why I volunteered for national service. I'm one of uh, a few hundred, actually. It wasn't just me. There was a few hundred people actually volunteered for national service. And I thought that's got to be better. Plus, there was a benefit at the end of it in that uh, they would pay my fees and give me a, a, a some money to actually go to university after two years. So I had no intention of going to Vietnam or staying in the army. But when I got into the army, I... I loved it almost from day one. I can even name the first two drill sergeants I ever met. They were drill corporals, actually. And the stories, they, they had both been to Vietnam. This is 1966. They'd both been there riding the first battalions. And um, one of them was a German. I won't mention his name, actually. But he had served in the Hitler Youth in uh, World War II on the Eastern Front. And then he served in uh, the French Foreign Legion and was captured at the MBN Fu. And then he served in Algeria. And you just dropped your jaw when you had, these are real men. These are not Bruce Willis's or Arnold Schwarzenegger with pretend guns. These were doing it for real. And he couldn't wait to get back and do it all again. So I decided actually that I, I really like knowing real men. And so um, I was then selected for officer training. I struggled to get through that because of some character issues in my part of not being very good at uh, being not so much self-discipline, but um, being ordered around. But I got through that, and then uh, I wasn't selected to go to Vietnam, so I had to sign on for five years to try and get myself in Vietnam, and I had a daily prayer meeting. Dear Lord, don't stop the war until I get there, because um, I'd met these people that had been there, done that, and I wanted to be like them. And uh, so, and that, that's another thing, actually, I must mention to you. I mean, we were there with a small contingent in 1962, which was the training team, all professional soldiers. But finally, from uh, 1966 on, of course, 5 Battalion and 6 Battalion both had quite a large contingent of uh, national servicemen. And people say, oh, it was terrible. And I've had people actually talk to me and say, oh, it must have been terrible being called up and you know, forced to go to Vietnam when you didn't want to. And I keep pointing out to them, <clears throat> every single national serviceman, despite what some of them will tell you, um, actually volunteered. There was not you had to sign a paper saying that you were willing to go. And if you didn't want to go, you signed another paper saying, I don't want to go. And you were made the barman in the mess at the sergeant's mess or something, or you cleaned the toilets or whatever. But if you, you were asked if you wanted to go. And so all the people there had now made very good mates during the initial training and the mates were actually going, then a lot of them said, yeah, I'll go too. They may have, they may have not thought of themselves as willing soldiers, but in fact, they, they actually elected to actually go to Vietnam. And um, about half the uh, battalions were actually made up of national service. And of course, that was all at the lower ranks, up to the rank of second lieutenant, because the higher ranks were all people who had been in the army for much longer and were professional soldiers. And there's some very, very good books written about it, um, such as Starlight, which was written by a doctor in 5RER. Now, take this, this guy. He was only in the Army six weeks when they asked him to volunteer to go to Vietnam as the regimental medical officer for 5 Battalion, which was going there in June 66. And he said, okay, sounds good. 
And off he went. Now, here's a guy who goes to Vietnam straight out of medical school. And he, he's actually said, I know him actually, he's actually sent me a picture of the um, shell dressing he, that they all carried. And it's dated 1915. It was a leftover from Gallipoli that we were still using in 1965. We kept it in store until then. And that was, we didn't have any, we hadn't prepared for any of this. So even during World War II, and he's actually sent me, he kept it after he left uh, Vietnam. But here's a guy who takes these super fit young men who've all been taught and are ready to go. And they're all willing to get there. And 25 of them are killed and 88 are wounded. And he treated most of them. And they're all super fit young men. And so when you look at the casualties that they took and what had actually happened, um, you can see why anyone could actually say, wait a minute, that wasn't quite what I thought it would be like. It wasn't quite the adventure or the, um, you know, the, the good times. But the mateship you made there has lasted me for the last 50 years. And um, I'm still good friends with a lot of the people actually I met early on in my army career. But uh, yeah, I mean, I had to wait. I didn't get to Vietnam until 1969 because I, I, I was supposed to go in 68, but I got bumped by a, a guy who was only three months senior to me. But he said, I want to go. And so the military secretary said, yep, you're senior. Sounds like the, the start of Zulu when they were deciding who was going to be in charge of Rock's Drift. <laughs> and when did you graduate? February. I graduated in, uh, once I said I graduated in June. I graduated in February. So Chad got the job of being the guy in charge. And so this guy actually got there before me. And I had to wait until his tour of duty of 12 months was over. And then I replaced him 12 months later. So, um, yeah, there was, and, and when I got back, by the way, I have to point out, I was back in Australia by only 10 days. And I looked around and I thought, I don't belong here anymore. I, I, I probably would, you know, did have some initial, initial problems that I didn't realize at the time. And 10 days later, I went to the military secretary and said, where do I sign up to get back to Vietnam? 10 days. And he, he actually told me, I, I, can, I don't know the guy's name now, but I can remember his face because it, it shocked me. He said, uh, the waiting the lady, the waiting list of people who have volunteered to go is 18 months long. Uh, what? And I'm being told that the war is highly unpopular and people are marching the streets and nobody wants to go and the waiting list is 18 months long. So uh, there was still a queue waiting to go. So I put my name down anyway and um, I was at Canonga for the Battle Efficiency Course waiting to go back to Vietnam when they called the war off. So my prayers failed. Second time. So uh, I didn't get back to Vietnam. But instead, they sent me to Indonesia, which was good fun. And then uh, when I got back from there, I was thinking of getting out of the army because you know, it's a peacetime army. And they sent me to Papua New Guinea, where I saw more violence than I did even in Glasgow. It was a, an interesting place. And I loved it so much. I spent, I, I kept volunteering to stay on there and spent three years there. <laughs> How about so, that? So, um, horses for courses. Literally horses for courses. Uh, they don't make them like they used to, Alistair. That's an incredible story. We, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll we'll talk more about your adventures in Vietnam. You're listening and watching to Weekends here on TNT. Rick Munn on TNT Radio. There was a, a statement that I saw last week that I thought was quite interesting from one of these uh, web spokespeople, the World Economic Forum spokesperson. And one thing that she said that I thought was quite interesting was she said, you know, um, 
um, there has been a little bit of a tail off with people buying into the vaccine narrative and she blamed that on people like us spreading so-called missing disinformation. She said that climate change was a little bit too much of an abstract concept for people to really grab and get their heads around. So that's not really taking off the way they want to either. And then she said something very interesting. She said, you know what? When the water crisis comes, people will understand that because it's simple and everybody needs water. And if you don't have water for a few days at a time, you'll know all about it. So maybe, you know, we're hypothesizing a little bit about what's, what it's going to take to grab people and bring them back on board again with a World Economic Forum type narrative. Could this be what it is? Locked and Loaded with Rick Mon on today's News Talk TNT Radio. People might tell you that Lyme doesn't kill people, but we are losing people. People disappear from their lives. One of the scariest things that I had to deal with was uh, memory loss. Not just like I don't remember what I did last week, but like I forgot all the words to my own songs. I remember going to my primary care physician and he was like, you are 100% healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. And my response was, that's impossible, I'm dying. I wasn't working. I had all of these hospital bills. We had to move out of our home and move into my parents' basement. I just wish I could have truly been present in those big moments, you know, when she took her first steps or, you know, her first day of preschool. Lyme is such a thief and it goes undetected because no one is looking for it. For more information and prevention tips, go to projectlime.org. The Net Zero Con will leave millions of citizens dependent on state handouts. It isn't a theory. It's an agenda. There is no climate emergency. On air 24-7. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. And this hour I'm with retired veteran Alastair Pope. And we're learning all about Alastair's career in the military. And he's arrived in Vietnam and wants to get there. Strangely, it's a struggle to actually get involved. Alastair, we talk about climate change today, or at least in the mainstream, it's spoken about and all this fear that the weather could go up by one and a half degrees and the whole world is going to end and humanity has to eat bugs and all that nonsense going on. You come from Glasgow and now you end up in Vietnam. Now that is some climate change. How did you deal with the heat and the humidity in full battle dress? How do you cope? Well, I I, I recognised fairly early in life that um, Glasgow is not paradise on earth. I mean, the summer temperature there is 16 degrees. (laughs) <laughs> and the winter temperature is minus three when people hibernate. And so, and it rains. It rains 200 days of the year. Yeah. And I remember actually standing on top of a hill one day and being absolutely overwhelmed with the fact that there wasn't a single cloud in the sky. One day in my 18 years, I saw a blue sky, completely blue, no clouds at all. So when, and I used to go to um, a, a little theater, you paid sixpence about five cents in today's terms. And you got to see some cartoons and some travelogues. And we had Bondi Beach. Now, uh, an Australian friend of mine went to uh, Scotland. He was in Aberdeen. He said, what do people do here? And he said, oh, you can go to the beach. And he went down to the beach and it was 10 degrees and there were people swimming. And he went back and he said, who are these lunatics? What's, <laughs> what, what's going on? He said, what are you talking about? This is normal. And there was a famous uh, case there during the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh where they, they ran the marathon out 13 miles one way and 13 miles back again. 
this guy's running along and they're following him and um he's winning the race and the camera was they were in a helicopter and the camera actually scanned past the guy who's standing there with his shirt off sunbaking and they're watching it go back so the, the helicopter goes back and said you see that guy the wind chill factor might must make it about two degrees and he's out sunbaking so I figured very early on in life that uh, Glasgow did not have the perfect climate, was not the perfect place to stay. So my brother actually came to Australia and the rest of the family decided to join him in Perth. Mm. And yes, I did find it hot, but I went straight out to the outback, but it was even hotter. Yes. And it didn't I affect found you. Out that people are very, very adaptable. And um, I, uh, I didn't mind it. I, I've got a lot of pictures of me getting sunburnt, and I mean sunburnt given my skin. Um, run about the, the outback there with a shirt off as much as I could until I would get too burnt and I had to wear a shirt just to actually protect myself because the sunburn was so sore. Anyway, I mean, I, I, I got used to all of that. So I didn't have a great problem in, in going to Vietnam because before I went there, I was based in Townsville. They're not Townsville, Br Brisbane. So I basically got used to the heat. And so Vietnam was not much different. And um, I still like it to this day. Um, I, I, I'm probably one of these odd people. I'm impervious to both heat and cold. Uh, I, I worked in Russia at a place called Tiermen, which is one of the coldest places on earth where the locals actually like it when it's minus 40. Um, and they all go out and you see them sitting around in the snow. They're sitting on park benches in the snow and it's minus 40. They like it because the summers are hot, humid, and you get the black fly plague which are bloodsuckers. And so uh, they actually like the cold. I don't. I, uh, that was one of the reasons actually why we go away from the Melbourne winters. And we bought a place in, uh, in Vietnam in a condominium there, an apartment block on the 17th floor, ocean views, mountains behind. And if I, if I feel, feel it's too warm, we got five air conditioners. And it cost me peanuts because they're all from the coal-fired power station at Phu Mai, which is 30 kilometers away. that supplies power very cheaply to 23 million people. The only power outages we've had, and there was one interesting one, it's a Buddhist country, but we had a power outage when people had put on so many Christmas lights, can you believe this, Christmas lights, that they actually brought down the power grid. Within one day, they were out there building a bigger substation. In Australia, we would have banned Christmas lights. That's right. That's I mean, right. We, we've got a failing society. They've got an expanding society, which I thoroughly enjoy, and I'm quite happy to actually live by that. And as I said in that article to you, there's everything there. What if I want McDonald's or Highland mm -hmm. Highlands cafes or any of those things? They're all there. But in fact, I prefer to uh, go to the local places and, uh, you know, settle into the local atmosphere. Why would I go to Vietnam and live like an Australian or a Scot? And yeah, a lot of people do that. They, they, they live in their own little enclave, their own little ghetto of, uh, you know, ex-Australians, and they only talk to other ex-Australians. It's kind of odd, isn't it? It's almost like what many Australians um, 
uh, are not pleased with when people migrate to Australia and we talk about the idea of um, becoming part of assimilation into the country. And then, of course, people are critical when others don't. So why would we then go overseas to another country and, and therefore not want to assimilate into that culture? Where I want to go now, because I, I want to explore what it is like, obviously, for uh, somebody to to move to, uh, to Vietnam and, and live there. But before that, you're fighting for Australia against the Vietnamese. How do you um, deal with with that situation that you're in Vietnam and they are the enemy to getting out of it and returning and now they're Vietnamese and Vietnam is your friend? Um, what's that process involved and what's that like? Well, one of, one of the interesting things is when I was doing my initial training to go to Vietnam at Canungra, there was a, a medical, a doctor came along to explain to us, don't eat the local food, don't drink the water. And everyone in Vietnam has got at least three deadly diseases. Ooh, okay. And, you know, so you, you turn up at Vietnam and you look out the first day and everybody looks healthy. And so I ate the local food. They used to call them hepatitis rolls. That's the famous spring rolls you can go to any Vietnamese restaurant and order. And so I went out and I ate the spring rolls and uh, I ate everything and I never got sick until the last day, by the way. I did I did eventually pick up something on, on my last meal there when I went out. And um, But the point there was, I was one of those exceptions that looked around and thought, what I was told and what I'm seeing, what am I going to believe, what the doctor told me or what my lying eyes are telling me? That's a Groucho Marx thing, by the way. Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? And so I actually looked around and I actually, I made friends with some Vietnamese that were there. And uh, in fact, I, I've got a photo of myself. I, I took some orphans uh, to the beach. I, I borrowed an army vehicle and some food and someone came along with me who could speak Vietnamese. And I took all these kids down to the beach one day. So there was a, a winning hearts and minds program, which uh, I got involved in as much as I could. And I made friends with the Vietnamese. And um, I uh, had no problems. A lot of people actually, I, I did write a poem, which I think I sent you to, and it said in there, one, one person said, how can you deal with them? They're inferior. We are superior. I said, I listened to his advice and ignored it. Mm. And um, so, as you know, uh, I met a Vietnamese girl there, and um, I, I dated her only twice. I had other things to do, so I didn't get to see her that often. And then I didn't see her for five years. Then I wrote her a letter, and that letter was actually delivered. She got out as a refugee. We got married, and that was 47 years ago. So, but yeah. will it last? I mean, I keep telling her she's inferior, but she tells me I'm inferior. So <laughs> one of us, we, we both can't be right. You, you know, it, it's such a beautiful story because it, it's a bygone era that you can't even say those things today uh, and be and, and and be allowed to even say them. And yet here we are and we can joke with our loved ones and share these beautiful stories and what they are. It, it, it's an incredible story to think that um, uh, humanity um, overtakes any form of adversity, even in, in this. And it just, it, it, for, for other people might look back and go, well, so what? But here you are, busting to get into Vietnam, chasing adventure, really 
realizing that you're a man's man, an alpha male, if you will, in today's terms, and you're going over there to participate in something for your adopted country, and you're all in, 100% in to serve and to be part of Australia and then to be part of Vietnam. And uh, you've then, of course, um, separately, as you said earlier, you went over and um, and went and served in Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. Perhaps if we can um, just quickly compare what it was like in Indonesia versus Vietnam so that you knew that your heart lay in Vietnam instead of Indonesia. Um, I went there with a, an operation called Gadding 3, uh, which was a survey operation in Sumatra. Um, I did a language course before I went there. So, in fact, I could speak colloquial and some enough uh, Indonesian to get by. It's a very easy language to spell, to, to learn. As you can hear, I've been in Australia since 1964 and I've still got a Scottish accent. It always amazed me when I listened to myself. So I could never learn Vietnamese because that's a tonal language, but I did in fact learn enough Indonesian and I got on very well with the Indonesians, um, partially because I didn't realize before I went there that they're also keen chess players and so am I. So I used to go out there and just wander the streets and play chess with people there that were on the, the streets playing chess. I, I, got, I really liked Indonesia, but it was not a, we didn't carry weapons or anything there. Um, Whereas Papua New Guinea really was the wild north. Uh, mm -hmm. It was becoming already a failed society after 1973, and I didn't get there until 75. Um, so the Papua New Guinea was quite different. It was like Glasgow on a Saturday night, every night. And so there was lots of uh, sort of fists and feet and violence. Um, and I mean, like most people, I've only ever been in two knife fights. One was in Glasgow and the other was in Papua New Guinea. Uh, I'm sure many people have been in more knife fights than that, but you know, it's, just one of those things. Um, and by the way, I'm lying because the knife fight in uh, Papua New Guinea doesn't really count because I was the guy with the knife. And when I stabbed him, he ran off and took the knife with him. So I lost my knife. Ah. So, um, yeah, but anyway, so it was a, it was a much wilder place. It, but I enjoyed it for the same reason is that – and another friend of mine who was there for eight years with an accounting firm said – he loved it because you were always on edge. There was an anticipation of violence and you could avoid it if you were careful enough, but you always had to be there. And he said that edge actually, you know, kept them, you know, excited. And I had the same thing. I actually tried to volunteer for a fourth year, but they decided it was time I got promoted and sent me down to Townsville. So I didn't have any choice by that stage. I'd already deferred promotion the previous year to stay on in Papua New Guinea, and I couldn't defer it again. So I went down to spend two years in uh, Townsville. But um, so Vietnam was interesting because one of the things actually you, you obviously didn't realize, we had 7,500 soldiers there at our mm. peak. 5,000 of them were in uh, Nui Dat, which was the operational base. Of those 5,000, only about two to two and a half thousand actually went out into the combat zone. The rest were actually keeping this small city running. Everything from the postal unit to the people who cooked your food, the people who were drivers around the place, doing the logistics, all the administration, that accounted for nearly half the people in the operational base. And down in, in Vong Tau at one Australian logistics support group, in the seven years we were there, there were only two minor incidents. Actually, there were three. One guy was killed, actually. But that was in a bar. He got stabbed by the bar owner and killed. 
So that doesn't really count, you know, as uh, in the most exciting place to spend your war. So what you had was that the majority of people in Vietnam were not combat soldiers. And um, I did write a, a story about the tunnel rats. Now, they're people I thoroughly admire. Mm. Um, they're, I mean, I, I, I don't consider myself cowardly, but they had a level of courage that I don't think I have to go into a less than one meter wide tunnel in the pitch black with a flashlight, a knife, and a torch, uh, sorry, and a, a small pistol, and go through those tunnels hunting for people to kill. So if um, doing this in the dark by yourself doesn't excite you, then being a tunnel rat is probably not for you. And yet um, we came across a tunnel one day called up what's called a splinter team, the combat engineers came out, and this guy just couldn't wait to get down this tunnel. <laughs> I'm thinking, you're a lunatic. And by the way, I know the head of the Tunnel Rats Association. He came along and gave a, a talk about their experiences. Now, they had 35 people killed out of a small, very small group of people, only about a few hundred. And um, they should have got much more recognition than they did. Um, but... They're very much a very close band of brothers as a result of the experiences they had. And I didn't realize up until then that the, the combat engineers probably had more combat experience than even the infantry. So when you look at it, a lot of people who went to Vietnam saw no combat. Some didn't even get out of the base camp ever. And, um, you know, it was not necessarily an exciting time or... Um, a time that should actually reduce you to being a gibbering wreck for many of the people concerned. There are people who had, of course, extremely bad experiences and others who had a lot of combat experience but actually overcame it and haven't got PTSD or anything like that. And, of course, we had uh, 506 killed and about uh, 2,200 wounded. Now, that's quite high casualties given that 50,000 served there. So it's about, what's that? 1% were killed, and about 4% uh, were injured. So when you look at it, um, I think COVID killed more people. Mm. But, Absolutely. Um, so anyway, Vietnam, Vietnam was interesting. I mean, I, I loved it. And uh, at the end of my tour, actually, I did something quite not unique. I'm sure other people did something similar. I actually got to the airport to on the flight back to Australia, and I didn't want to leave. So, in fact, I walked across the airstrip to an American plane and got on that and flew up to Coochie. And I wandered around like a tourist for the next two weeks. I borrowed American units. I went to Cambodia. I went up to Tainan, did all of those sort of things. And I used to phone up and say, um, just let the operations managers know I'm in Tainan, but I'm leaving immediately so you can't contact me and hang up. <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> left a note there saying, if you're not back in three days, we're going to court-martial you. Yeah, okay. Okay, um, when I got answer. back, of course, I got bowled out and uh, I got the impression that one second lieutenant wandering around as a tourist in Vietnam was destroying the competency of the army. But anyway, so that was just me. I didn't want to leave. So I got an extra 10, 14 days in Vietnam before they finally sent the military police to put a second lieutenant on a plane and send them back to Australia. And as I said, 10 days later, I volunteered to go back again in any position. I've got to tell you something, actually. There's a very good friend of mine. He's just got out of the hospital, actually, and he's now much older than me. He got an interesting letter. He was in the training team, and um, there was basically himself and three others working with the Vietnamese. 
And the VC decided that they should kill him. So they actually gave the job to a guy who was on the road there, who was a VC. And they said, they come down this road often enough. Here's your weapon. Kill him when you get the chance. Well, he never got the chance. And about 35 years later, he knew that he knew he was trying to kill. He found out where he was and wrote to him and then was hosted at Cairns RSL. He came down with his family. He had three daughters and they had children and they all came down and were hosted at Cairns RSL. Now I can't see that happening in Afghanistan or Iraq. There are probably other reasons for that, but these guys became friends. Mm. And there's another friend of mine lives down here in Victoria. Um, who got a letter from uh, someone else, exactly the same sort of thing. And he said, oh, I'm like, I've got relatives in Australia now who've immigrated here. I'd like to come and actually meet up with you. So he brought his three daughters down. And this guy that I know is now sponsoring one of the daughters to do university. So it was not an, a war where we hated each other. And you, you've got to take into account the Turks actually um, from Gallipoli, not from Gallipoli, none from there. But Turks actually march in Anzac Day parades. The um, the bugler at one of the Anzac Days was a Turk. <laughs> He's playing the last post in Rivali. Yeah. I mean, times go on, and there's no real hatred in that. And nobody asks the Germans, "Well, what about the war? I'm going to go to Germany. Should I ask them about the war or Japan? You don't go. You don't turn up there and look over your shoulder and say, "What about your war?" But I invited someone I know quite well to come to join us for a week in Vietnam. And his question to me was, what about the war? And I said, the war finished in 1973. And for us in 1972, and 85% of the world's population has been born since then. Mm. The Vietnamese have virtually no memory of the war. There are, in fact, my next door neighbors are North Vietnamese colonel. And um, quite an unfriendly guy, actually. Um, but I uh, don't know why. But uh, he, um, oh, he was a North Vietnamese, but he has a memory of that, but has moved on. Yeah. And so when you get something like the Brereton Report and the disgraceful things that we're doing to our own soldiers and, and someone like uh, Ben Smith, um, there was a suggestion, actually, that we should send people back to look into possible war crimes by Australians in Vietnam. And that came up from General Brereton. They, they, they were unexplained incidents that happened that we should be exploring. And I said, go for it. You'll get a nice free holiday in Vietnam and the Vietnamese will ignore you. They don't care. And the, the youngest um, person who served in Vietnam is now 77 years old. Well done. You've just got a job for life trying to prosecute 77-year-olds when the opposition that you're supposed to have killed don't care. Yeah. What's wrong with this picture? I mean, Everything. this is this is why I'm saying the Australian Army has become such a disgrace. It's now prosecuting its own soldiers hmm. um, and doesn't look into the um, you know what happened from the other side, and it's all over. Move on. No, there are a few years after the war when things happened in Vietnam yeah. that perhaps the North Vietnamese are no longer proud of either, or the Vietnamese are no longer proud of. They've moved on. And, yeah. and that's the way it should, it should be. We've moved on with Germany. We've moved on with Japan. Now our best friend. Yes. Uh, it, and yet they committed horrible crimes during World War II. 
So, Alistair, we're going to have to take a quick break, but when we come back, what what I wanted to do was to ask you about your experience now that you have uh, you know purchased property, set up a life in Vietnam, and it seems that many other Australians are also looking at this new idea of being able to stretch their retirement dollars further and finding out how much they actually love living on the other side uh, over in Vietnam. We'll talk about that when we come back here on TNT. While serving in Afghanistan, I was hit by sniper fire. The fighting was so intense, the medevac chopper was barely able to land. In the hospital, I was given a 5% chance to live. It's a good thing math wasn't my best subject. Today, I visit classrooms and share my story. I talk to kids about dealing with life's struggles. I tell them, with a little help and a lot of work, that you can overcome any challenge. DAV helps veterans like Adam get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. I know that some struggles are big and some are small, but they're all struggles, and you have to learn to get through them. With support from DAV, more veterans like me can live their best life. And as a new father, I have one more reason to keep on keeping on. My victory is being there for the next generation. Adam Alexander, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. You ever heard of a polyp? Sounds like a rare species of toad. Actually, it's a lump that grows inside me, your bowel. Look, I'm pretty sure if you had a strange lump growing on your forehead, you might get it looked at, right? But when they're growing inside me, nothing, nada. And the polyps I get can lead to Australia's second deadliest cancer. So, until there's a way to make them grow on your face, it's up to you to get me looked at. Got it? When the whole world seems turned upside down, we sort through it together. Weekends with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk TNT. Welcome back to Weekends. I'm here with Alastair Pope. And before the break, talking about all of life involving a career that takes you to another country, in Alastair's case, to Vietnam and to Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. But then you decided to settle in Vietnam at least part of the year. And this is a phenomenon now for many retirees in this country looking to find other places to live to stretch their retirement dollars further. And people are absolutely loving Vietnam, which is not just a tourist destination anymore, but a place a place for people to live. Alastair, what's it like living in Vietnam? And when did you decide to permanently uh, settle there at least part of the year with your wife? When I was approaching retirement, we looked at, uh, well, what are we going to do? And I suggested that I'd like to live in either Perth, Townsville or Brisbane. You know, it was somewhere quite warm or we might get a holiday home in Vietnam. And my wife went back there and, you know, I've sent her out to buy milk and bread now and again, she's come back with a house or a car or something. But uh, <laughs> in this case here, she came back with two apartments. And so I suddenly found myself actually, and by the way, the two apartments, 17th floor, ocean views, thing behind, stripped. She actually um, bought the place and furnished it for $500,000. And it's gigantic. It's as big as any Australian house. And uh, so when you look at that opportunity, and it's got security guards downstairs, everything else, not that I really need them. And so I went across there, and we've had that since 2014. Uh, and by the way, unlike Australia, when we had the builders come in, they finished the whole, they actually lived on the site, and they finished the whole refurbishment of the place in three months. So the time we got there, it was fully furnished, ready to go. Everything was there. 
And that's where we've been spending time. We've had the family come. We've had a lot of guests come across. And then we bought a third place because the guests started to annoy me. So we bought another place that we could put the guests so they didn't annoy me all day. Um, you can tell I'm a social guy. Um, <laughs> so that, we've been doing that now since 2014. What's that? Yeah. Nearly this will be our ninth year. Uh, ninth? Hold on. Five, six. Yeah, ninth year. Um, it's, it's a great place to live. Uh, the food is good. It's like Australia was when I got here. I can walk the streets safely at night. Nothing has ever been stolen from me. My next door neighbor dropped his wallet, and a guy ran after it with 600 US dollars in it, which is how much this guy would probably see in a year, and gave it back to him. Um, so it's a great place. Food's great. People are very friendly. We have dinner parties. Um, something that you can't, you don't have in Australia anymore, which we used to have many years ago. I just love the lifestyle. And by the way, I've, I've reconnected with chess. There's some very, very strong chess players there, stronger than I am. I thought I'd be the champion, but I'm not. I'm not even close. Um, so you have a great lifestyle. There are a lot of Australians there. Unfortunately, there are two types. There's people like me who live with. In, in, have immersed themselves in the system, if you like, immersed themselves in Vietnam. And there are those that still consider themselves 20 years old and try to remember exactly how they were, despite their big pot bellies and their beer addiction. Um, and and they, they'd they live in a, I think, what was, the place, what was the place in England called? Knightsbridge or somewhere where they, all the Australians used to gather. There's one particular street, which I do drive down in my motorbike, but I never stop. And I just see these guys at nine o'clock in the morning, just pouring the first beer. And if I go back at nine o'clock, they're pouring the last beer. And so I don't want to join in with them, but they can afford to do it there. Beer is a dollar. Mm. So you can get through a lot of beers in a day without sort of breaking the budget. So anyway, there are people there. Um, but the lifestyle for those who want to live a good life is just about as good as it can get. Uh, I do, in fact, I'm strongly lobbying the government to prevent any Australian refugees being allowed in. Um, we have enough. The place is full. <laughs> it's full of Aussies. Yeah, it's full of Aussies. Too many. Um, so we have that sort of situation there where I'm, I'm trying to actually restrict the number of Australians there. I've got some good Australian friends there, but they belong to that first class where they, they're a bit sensible and... Uh, as I said, we have dinner parties and we do so on. There's a lot of Americans there too, believe it or not. And the, the building we live in has probably got about um, one third of foreigners. We have an Italian. Uh, I, there's a French guy that I get on very well with. Um, there's a couple of uh, probably about four or five Americans. Um, so when you look around, there's 116 apartments in, my, uh, in the building and um, probably about... 70% are occupied full-time, 30% are people who've got it as a holiday home like I have, and the rest are actually uh, Vietnamese who have moved in there. And they're really friendly and easy to get along with. And I said, we've got security guards down there that look after our motorbikes for us, and it's a good life. And we get up in the morning, go out for breakfast, cost me $1.60 for breakfast. Maybe, maybe we blow the budget and buy the prawns too and have $3 for breakfast. <laughs> And uh, then I do a lot of writing still. So I go back and I do some writing. If it's too hot or too humid, switch on the air conditioner. It cost me about, um, I think my bill there was equivalent to less than a quarter in Australia. 
and that's running air conditioners and the whole house is fully electric. So what's the not to like? Oh, by the way, I did in fact have a major um, staphylococcus infection in my leg and was admitted to hospital. And I have to say, and I better not say it too loudly in case some doctor hears me, but it was actually a better hospital than in Australia. Mm. And because I had a private room, my wife had to come and stay there too. Um, because they don't have people sort of, if you're in a private room, they don't look after you very closely, so you have to have a carer. So she had a, a bed in the corner there, and I was hooked up to all these antibiotics on the other side. I was in the hospital for nine days, and, and that cost me about $3,000. Health services are good. Yeah. Everything I need is good. I've got the vehicle. We can go up to uh, Saigon or Ho Chi Minh, which we do occasionally. We travel up in a limousine, and the round trip costs us about $60. Yeah. So, And it's 100 kilometers away. I mean, the, it's not just the money. It's not just the end of that. It's the whole lifestyle thing. Mm. Um, and we've looked at it and said, well, what happens when we get really old and we're not capable of sort of looking after ourselves as well as we can now? What do we do then? The answer is I'd probably get better care there than I can here. So it makes a lot makes a lot of sense. Alistair, I was going to ask you, do you avoid the wet season or do you actually go when the wet season is on? No, How do you we avoid the that? wet season. I love it. Um, as I said, I, my the, the angle at the balcony is at, the monsoon comes past. It's beautiful to watch, yeah. especially if you've got the duck party and you've got the Sauvignon Blanc and you've got a good book to read. <laughs> and, and the cool breeze is just beautiful. So, in fact, I don't mind the wet season at all. And it, it's like clockwork. Um, I can go out in the mornings. Uh, so long as I'm back by four in the afternoon, you can and I've taken some photos of some magnificent storms coming in. And so providing I'm back early enough, I don't generally get wet. And, um, yeah, and then in the evening it will stop about 8 o'clock and we can go out for dinner. And uh, the streets have been washed and cleaned. It's a good life. And don't tell anyone because I don't want any more Australians there. This is the problem, isn't it? It's such a good story that you can see why so many people are yeah. making the move and, and changing you, their lifestyle. You mentioned actually that uh, your wife actually wants to take a trip to, to Vietnam. Um, Absolutely, I, yes. I've been, I've been to Jordan, I've been to Petra, and Petra was one of the most fascinating places. It's in uh, one of the Indiana Jones things. I thought that was fascinating, absolutely superb. And I've been to a couple of other places that you know, are absolutely superb. But one place that overwhelmed me was a place called Ninh Binh. Now, everyone's heard of Halong Bay with all these thousand islands of these castes. Um, but Ninh Binh was absolutely extraordinary because the only way to get into Ninh Binh itself is through a cave in a boat. And when you get in there, it's like Shangri-La inside because the mountains completely ring it. And um, people used to live in there, and the only way in was through this because the, the mountains are too steep, you can't climb them. And because they're very soft uh, limestone, you just can't get over that way. And uh, during the, um, when they were trying to kick the, the uh, Chinese out, they kept an army in there that used to come out and raid the Chinese and then disappear again. The Chinese never found them. So, um, but Ninh Binh was one of the most fascinating places I've ever been. And uh, so we do a lot of traveling around. We've been to Dalat. Uh, we've been to Da Nang, obviously. We've been to Wei. We've been to Hanoi. And we've been to Halong Bay. And my wife was just saying this time, we've never been to Canto, 
we'll, we'll go down to Canto in this next trip. And so you can either fly, it's very cheap to fly, or you can take, I like taking the bus, she doesn't, because I like to see the scenery that goes by. Um, she just likes to get there. Mm. And, um, you know, finding sitting for six hours on a bus doesn't suit her to the same extent it suits me, because I like to see the countryside that goes by. So, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great lifestyle, and there's lots to do and see. And there are things that you can get involved in, such as the local chess club or the local tennis club or the local whatever, if that's what you want to do. And um, there's a lot of socialization that goes on there that I don't even have in Australia. I mean, if you call up 10 people to come around to a dinner party at your place, you'll be lucky if you get half of them say, I can make it on that day. Yes. Um, whereas there, uh, it's easy. We hire someone for less than $20 who comes in, cooks all the food, cleans up afterwards, and goes away and is very happy we gave him 20 bucks. And so we were able to socialize with everyone else at the table too. So, yeah, no, I can't think of a better lifestyle. And I resent, I resented uh, virtually coming back here, but um, because we actually came back and got caught by COVID and mm. missed out in a whole year by being stuck in Dandemikstan, the gulag of uh, Victoria. Yes, that would have been one of the, one of the most difficult periods of your life to to out of all the things that you've been through and put yourself into and jumped in, and then to come back to a so-called free Australia in that uh, period of the lockdowns in Victoria was was probably the toughest place in the world to be. It certainly would have been a a real shift in in the way that you looked at the world at that point. And I bet that at the first possible opportunity, you're like, let's get out of here. We did. We went back um, fairly early on as soon as the sort of bans were lifted. By the way, I'm unintoxicated. I haven't had that COVID jab or prick, as I call it. Mm. Um, so I don't, I, I refuse to actually get an MRA injection. So I haven't ever had any. I've had COVID. It, I did get it. And it actually did flat me for about 10 days. But now I'm immune. I've met mm. people with COVID and I don't get it again because I've actually got that natural immunity. So, um, and by the way, Vietnam didn't lock down. It locked down places where there was COVID. It put its old people in to protect them. It put people in who had COVID into isolated areas, quarantine, but it didn't lock down totally. And I've got some videos of uh, out on the street at nights where there are virtually thousands of people intermingling at the height of COVID. And um, they, they actually did restrict the people who, who had COVID but not everyone else. They needed to keep their economy going. And so they did. And they only restricted those people who actually were either at risk or had COVID. And this is what we're finding, and they're all the better for it. Anyone who resisted this uh, Western globalist one-size-fits-all solution seemed to be the ones that uh, did better if you resisted and if you went with it, uh, still paying for it today. It's um, certainly a, a, a wonderful testimony to a wonderful place, uh, an adventure that has become a lifestyle, truly an extraordinary experience. And no wonder why Australians are starting to look outside of their own borders to uh, see what else the world has to offer. Alastair, it's been a delight to be able to speak to you today. We have unfortunately run out of time, but um, it it certainly tells us a whole lot more about uh, the way that we need to look at life in an adventure and doing it the way that we want to live our lives outside of the realms of other people. 
are telling us what to do, even if you struggled yourself through the military, but worked your way around it and to assume high rank there and uh, perform a, a wonderful career and even to have your children's follow uh, along with you. We're going to take a break for news. And when we come back, we'll have a whole lot more here on weekends on TNT.